is where we'll uh, be this morning as we continue walking through the book of Genesis. Uh, We've been in it for a while. We still have just a little bit left, but we're certainly getting towards the end of that. As we look at Genesis and get to the end, there are things that that we're going to look at and see in the text of Scripture. And and one of the things that's interesting to me is a large portion of Genesis, if you break it down uh, by people that that the book talks about, Joseph takes up the bulk. Uh, He's talked about more than Abraham, more than Isaac, more than Jacob. Joseph is the one who gets uh, most of the attention in, in Genesis, but really, if we look at the story of Joseph, it's, it's Joseph and, and, and his brothers. It's the sons of Jacob. And we've walked through their story, and what we've seen is there's a lot of hurt with this family. There's a lot of pain with this family, because this family's really good at sinning. They're really good at, 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 at not following what they're supposed to do. Jacob has this painful sin of favoritism that he shows on his kids. His kid's from Rachel. She was Jacob's favorite wife, so he coddles Joseph. And now that Joseph, he thinks, is, is dead, he certainly is coddling and doing the same thing with Benjamin. Uh, early on, Joseph was a tattletale, and he was annoying. He brought a negative report to his dad of his brothers, and even though he was one of the youngest ones, he wasn't sent to do the work. He was sent to supervise the work and watched, and if his brothers slacked off to tattle on them, he has two dreams uh, that if they're true mean that his brothers are going to bow down to him, and all of this just festers and festers in his brothers' hearts, creating this jealous hatred for him. And so when his brothers have an opportunity, they throw him in a pit to kill him, but instead they decide to sell him to slavery to the Ishmaelites. That's their backwoods cousins. And so Joseph is then sent on what feels like this whirlwind journey. Because when we read it, it just kind of hits really quickly. You know, Joseph is down, and then he's up, and he's down, and he's up, and he's down, and he's up. But if we spread it out and we understand the time frame here for Joseph... This isn't a whirlwind. This is a slow and just painful, lifelong journey now. He would be promoted, and then he'd be lied about, so he'd be made prisoner. And then he would be promoted, and then he'd be forgotten about for two years until he's finally remembered by the cupbearer because Pharaoh was having bad dreams. And so the Lord gives Joseph the interpretation to Pharaoh's dreams. There's going to be seven good years, followed by seven years of, of famine. And during the good years, they store up all these this food. Uh, And in the lean years, Joseph is going to sell the food as reserves. And this is really one of the things that elevates Egypt to be the global superpower that we know that it once was. It makes them incredibly rich. And so last week we saw the 10 of Joseph's brothers, Benjamin is left at home, show up and they need to buy grain because this famine is well beyond just Egypt. And Joseph knows who they are, but he does not tell them who he is. He enters into detective mode, trying to figure out if his brothers have changed, if they've grown in the Lord, or if if not. The idea we talked about last week was this difference between forgiveness and reconciling. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) forgiveness can be a one-way street. You can forgive somebody without ever talking to them again. And as Christians, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, then the gospel commands us to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean that we go, like, if somebody steals money from you, you forgive them by giving them your wallet. That's not what the Bible talks about, but forgiveness means you're not harboring bitterness towards them. Reconciling requires both parties to be involved. 
And so what Joseph is doing is he is sending his brothers to these tests to figure out if they've grown in the Lord or if they're still the brothers that they used to be to see if this relationship is something that can be reconciled or if it's something that Joseph just forgives and and moves on from. And so that's where we kind of pick up the story of Joseph, right? He he gives his family, uh, his brothers, grain. He sends nine of the ten brothers back. They leave Simeon in jail. Joseph calls them spies three times, and to prove that they're not spies, he says, go get Benjamin and bring him back here. And so when they get to Jacob to tell Jacob, hey, we've got to bring Benjamin back, Jacob says, absolutely not. Simeon's life is not worth Benjamin's life. Benjamin's the son of his favorite wife. He's not going to send him back. And that's kind of where the story left us last week. So I want to pray and then just dive in to to chapter 43 um, and, and see what the Lord has for us. So let's pray. God, we thank you for today that we get to gather together. I pray that you would use this passage of Scripture to grow our hearts towards you. That you would use this passage of Scripture to convict us or we need conviction, to encourage us or we need encouragement, to heal maybe deep, dark wounds that we have that need to be healed. That you would use this passage, that you would use your gospel to bring life, to bring light, to bring peace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 43 verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with us. There's with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And what we told him was in answer to the questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. For my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choicest fruits of the land in your bag. And carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, a little gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So Jacob's family, the Israelites, have run out of food from their first run of supplies for the Egyptians. And Jacob... Being Jacob wants to get more food, but he wants to not do the way he needs to do it. 
They're not going to get any more food unless they bring Benjamin back. Three times Joseph called them spies. And so if they come back to Egypt without Benjamin, the best case scenario is they're imprisoned, and the worst case scenario is they're killed. So it really doesn't make sense for them to go back to Egypt, even in the midst of a famine, if they're not going to take Benjamin because they're all going to die anyways. See, gospel reconciliation begins with a gospel peace. And that peace comes only after somebody has been saved and has grown in the gospel. Did you catch who it was that was talking to Jacob? This is important. Judah. Judah has not been a good character in the the Bible so far. The first time we meet Judah was in Genesis 37 when they're selling, they have Joseph in the pit. It's Judah whose idea is to sell him into slavery. Listen to this, Genesis 37, verse 26. Then Judah said to his brother, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. It was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. All of Genesis 38 is telling us the story of Judah and this massive sin that he continued to do for a long period of time. By the time we get to Genesis 38, the whole chapter is basically telling us the story of Judah left the family to start his own little family. And he has three sons, and all we're told about his kids is the two oldest ones were so wicked that God kills them. The flood... Sodom and Gomorrah and Judah's two oldest sons are the ones in the Bible in Genesis that were told that God kills because of their wickedness. But Judah refuses to see that. Instead, he recognizes that it must be Tamar, who they both were married to. Tamar was his oldest son's wife. When he died, she married his second son because it was the Leverite marriage. And when he dies, Judah goes, well, it must be that woman. It's not their wickedness and their sin that's causing this. He's blinded to his kid's sin. And so he does some terrible things. He hides Tamar kind of away with her dad while his youngest son is is growing up. He has no intention of marrying his youngest son off to Tamar. And then Judah's wife dies. And after he's done mourning her, Judah seeks a prostitute out at the temple. And Tamar knows this. So she presents herself to him in that light and he takes the bait. And so Judah promises, this is a funny word because it's the same word Judah uses for Jacob. He says it in verse 9, I will be a pledge. He pledges to Tamar, same word, a goat, if you will sleep with me. And Tamar says, well, I need collateral. So she gets the ring, the cord, and the staff. And a few months later, she starts showing that she's pregnant. And Judah sees this as an opportunity to kill her. And so Tamar says, well, whoever these things belong to, that's who impregnated me. And it's in this moment when Judah recognizes his sin in that, that he repents. He's not the person we ought to look up to in this story. But now we see that I guess at some point the famine had probably driven him back to his family. And we see Judah doing something very different. 
He's making a pledge again, but this time he's not pledging it on somebody else. He's saying, it's on me. Send your son with me, and I pledge by my sake that I will guard him. In the chapter before, we saw Reuben say, hey, I will take Benjamin down there, and if he dies, you can kill my two sons. And Jacob's like, that's a terrible idea. But what, what Moses is showing us, what the Holy Spirit's showing us in Scripture, is, is Reuben wasn't ready. He, he's the oldest biological, but he's not the oldest in the eyes of the brothers. He's not the oldest in the eyes of the Lord. That it's Judah who is stepping up to lead. That it's Judah who has a rough past, marred with sin. That God's not done using yet. It's Judah who offers not his son, but himself. It's a self-sacrifice. See, before the incident with Tamar, Judah would never have done this. Or he would have lied. It was his idea to sell Joseph, but now this time it's different. When he's confronted with the sin, now that he's repented of his sin, he's turned to the Lord. We can see this change in Judah that's taken place. We also see something in Jacob. His favorite wife is Rachel, and she's dead. And his favorite son was Joseph, and he thinks he's dead. And so the part of the reluctance of Jacob sending Benjamin is Jacob knows that God has promised from his line the Messiah will come. From his line the snake crusher will come. So in Jacob's mind, it has to be one of Rachel's daughters, or Rachel's sons. It's got to be Joseph or Benjamin. And it can't be Joseph because Joseph is dead. And he's scared if he sends Benjamin, then Benjamin might be killed. And if Joseph and Benjamin are killed, then where is the Messiah going to come from? See, Jacob's favoritism, this sin that he had in his heart, this idol that he had built up for himself had blinded him to what the Lord was doing in his own family. Do you know that Jesus comes from the line of Judah? Not of Joseph, not of Benjamin. That Leah is the woman who carries the line. Not Rachel. The neglected and forgotten wife. That Tamar, the abused wife, carries the line of the Messiah. Both foreigners, neither Hebrew. That God is doing something far beyond what Jacob could have imagined, but because of the favoritism, because of the sin that he had in his heart, because of the idol that he had built up of his kids and of his wife, he failed to see what the Lord was doing. See, sometimes what what, what the Bible does, what God does to us, when we understand that the, the foundation of the gospel, that this peace and this reconciliation that God does with us, is a lot of times what the Lord will do is he will take things that are comfortable for us and he will rip them from us because peace is not comfort. 
No one is too far gone to be used by the Lord, but repentance and growth of the gospel means that this peace from the gospel comes not by us changing who we believe God is and expecting God to hear our commands and hear our demands and adapt, but peace comes from us recognizing that we are the ones who have moved away from the gospel, that we are the ones who have sinned and stepped outside of the Lord. We are the ones who have fallen short. We are the ones who have missed the mark. We are the ones who are in need of repenting and turning to God. Peace for the sake of peace can never fully be achieved. It's a moving target. Because the reality is, we can compromise, but that doesn't lead to a true peace. Because peace involves no conflict. Peace involves no issues. Man, I've sat with many people Students, adults alike, who who take emotions or feelings or whatever it is and will suppress them for the sake of peace. Only to have them later show up in the most unexpected places. Don't want to make my spouse mad. I don't want to make my spouse upset. So for the sake of peace, I just shut my mouth. But now I'm living this stressed and miserable life. I don't like how my life is going, and so instead of looking at the issues that I have and fixing what I control, I, I blame others. I develop this, this victim mindset, or I, I look down on those who need help because in reality I need help too, but I'm too prideful to care. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to feel hurt. I don't want to feel boredom. So I drink or I party or do whatever I can to numb it. On and on and on, that list of things that we think bring us peace goes. And Judah's an example of how the gospel brings peace. And it starts when we understand, like we, we don't pretend that we're perfect. We don't pretend like we've done nothing wrong. That doesn't bring us peace. It's by understanding that we are not perfect and that God is not done with us yet that we can start taking steps towards this gospel peace that Jesus brings. Man, Jacob bemoans the fact that they told Joseph that Benjamin existed. He doesn't mention Simeon's name. He says, you talked about Benjamin and now I've lost that other son too. What was his name? And so he comes up with this idea. It's the same playbook by Jacob. He decides to butter up Joseph just like he buttered up Esau with all of these gifts, hoping that maybe if he sends all these gifts to this Egyptian, it will appease him. And so God has given Judah peace through conviction, and God is going to give Jacob peace, but not the same way. God is going to give Jacob peace by taking the idol and ripping it out of Jacob's hand. It's Benjamin. What he loves most in life, what controls the decisions he makes, is his son. And so God is going to bless Jacob by forcing Jacob to put Benjamin in the Lord's hands and to trust him to God and God alone. The idols are dangerous because they take all sorts of shapes, then they still linger and are around us today. Jacob's idol wasn't some shiny statue that he had made out of gold, it was his son. Jacob was going to spend 
months. There's no texting in ancient Egypt. You could tweet, but you had to whisper to a bird. Jacob is spending months having no idea what's happening to his favorite son. See, idols are rarely bad things. Typically, the idols in our lives are good things that we elevate to God things. They're good things in our life that we elevate up that control our lives rather than us enjoying them for what they're meant to be used for. They take all sorts of shapes and sizes, and we must be careful with these because Ira is chock full of them too. Kids, family, job, health, grandkids, a better relationship, a new job, a new family, a new car, a new house, on and on and on. All of these things that are not necessarily bad can absolutely be bad if we elevate them to the status of idol like Jacob had done with his son. Because the reality with God and the reality of the gospel is God and Jesus is after all of us or none of us. It's an all or nothing thing. So this means that at times God shows us his love, God shows us his peace by sending us into disarray and wrecking our lives so that we have to rest in God and not on the little idols and, and kingdoms that we create. It's love. It doesn't feel like love in the moment. But it is. Because what's best for you and I is not to cling to these idols, but to cling to the Lord. And if by ripping those idols out of our hands sends our life into chaos, but at the end of it we cling to the Lord more tightly, what a blessing. Verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may be assault us and fall uh, uh, fall." and fall us upon to make the servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke to him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and then we came to the lodging place, and when we opened our sacks, there was each man's money in the mouth of a sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sack for you. I received your money. And he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought them in into Joseph's house and given them water, they washed their feet. And when he had given their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. So the brothers roll up to Egypt, they have Benjamin in tow, and right off the bat something is different and they catch it. Something is off. Think about this. It's a business transaction. And they're taken to Joseph's house for a meal. They don't know it's Joseph. 
the last time they saw Joseph, he accused them three times of being a spy to the point they had to leave a brother in Egypt, in prison, and go get Benjamin and bring it back, bring him back. And when they stopped to fill up the donkeys for gas, they noticed that on top of the sacks of grain that they had was the money that they had paid for all of their supplies. So if they went back to give the money back without Benjamin, it was suspicious and it looked like they were spies. But if they left and didn't come back, it looked like they stole the money from the kingdom. So they were in this really tough predicament, in this tough spot. Not to mention when they went to Israel, when they went to Jacob, he didn't want to send Benjamin. So they had to wait until all of their supplies of grain were gone to force Benjamin to come with them, to force Jacob to relent. So it's been a while. And what's neat in this passage, and we miss it, is they're not dealing with Joseph directly yet. It's his steward. And what we see is the brothers are scared. This is what a lack of peace does. You think someone is always out to get you. Something is always out to get you. There's always a worry in the back of your mind. I'm not a naturally worried person, and it drives Morgan nuts. She worries about me. When we take trips, we will get what Morgan says is lost. I don't worry about it. It's just a detour in the grand scheme of life. When people wake us up at 11.30 at night to knock on our front window and step in my grass and leave holes in my yard, I don't worry about it. I just seek ways to get revenge. Rants. But we can understand what's happening with the brothers and why they have this little bit of worry that's coming in. They're afraid because they have no peace about what is going to happen. And so their minds begin to run. And when you're worried and when you have no peace, every scenario that you run in your mind always ends bad. There's never a good scenario. And so they start thinking, well, why did we get brought to the house? Well, it's because the money that we placed in the sack. So now they're going to assault us and steal our donkeys, which is a ridiculous statement for them to even think and a ridiculous statement for them to even fear. Egypt is the only nation that has bread. Everybody else doesn't have bread. They're coming to Egypt to buy bread, and they're making lots of money. And so these Hebrew brothers think that the Egyptians are going to steal their used camels, their used donkeys. It makes no sense. They're not even the new model. But that's what a lack of peace does. Minds wander, imaginations run wild, and every scenario that we begin to think of when we don't have this peace ends in tragedy. The house is going to get foreclosed on. My vehicle's going to get impounded. My family is going to be hurt. I'll get fired. My business will fall apart, etc., etc., on and on and on. And what the brothers do here is, is an example for us of what we should do. They worry, but they don't let it paralyze them into fear. Instead, they go to the steward and they explain their fear, and they're upfront and they're honest with him. 
They say, we're pretty sure we got brought here because when we stopped for gas, we opened up our grain bags, and all of the money that we had was on top of the grain bags. And so we've brought that money back. We brought extra money to buy everything else, and we brought a present for Joseph. Please forgive us. We're not spies. We brought Benjamin. We have no idea how the money got on top of our grains. And I want to reread the steward's response in verse 23 because it's phenomenal. He replies, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money, and then he brought Simeon out to them. You know what this tells us? Joseph's been talking about God. And it has made an impression upon this steward who works for him. It's your God, the brother's God, and your father's God that put the money in your sack. Peace is what he tells them. Don't fear. And this isn't peace. Joseph isn't mad at you. This is peace. The pagan Egyptian is telling these men, you need to trust in your God. These men become the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's this pagan Egyptian who's saying, trust in your your God. Don't be afraid. Your God can take care of you even in Egypt. And so then Simeon comes out, rejoices with the brothers. They get cleaned up and they they begin to get the present ready for Joseph. Verse 26, and when Joseph had come home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him and bowed bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is, it, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father, is well. He is alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried, for his compassion grew warm, and for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Then he washed his face. He came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. And they served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthplace, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement, and portions were taken from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. So Joseph comes home to eat lunch with his brothers. Remember, Joseph's plan is to figure out where his brothers are spiritually at, if they've grown in the Lord or if they're still willing to sell their brother to slavery. He's trying to figure out, is this a relationship that can be reconciled? Can we have this peace that's a two-way street, or is it something that, that we need to move past? Have they grown in the Lord, or are they the same old brothers that they used to be? And so they give Joseph the gift that they brought, and then Joseph asks them about their dad, which must have felt odd. This high-ranking Egyptian official who you came to buy grain from is asking about your dad. And they're like, he's fine, he's alive. And he sees Benjamin. 
compassion grew in his heart is what the ESV says. Others say that he was overcome with emotion or something that, that means that. And so he has to leave. The last time he saw Benjamin, Joseph was 17-ish, which means Benjamin was very much a child. He composes himself. He starts the meal. And the meal's important for us to see what's happening because there's verses coming down the road, chapters coming down the road where these ideas come into play. We're told that Joseph eats alone, the Egyptians eat away from Joseph, and then the Hebrews are going to eat away from Joseph and the Egyptians. It's a weird dinner party. But they do so because the Egyptians will not eat with the Hebrews. They call it an abomination. Foreshadowing. And so then Joseph has these place cards put on the table, each one ranking the brothers from oldest to youngest. And it amazes them. What Joseph's doing is he's setting himself up in this kind of mysterious and amazing way from his brother's perspective. And then they're served off of Joseph's table. And Joseph gives Benjamin five times as much food as his brothers. And then the text tells us that they drank and were merry with him. Everywhere else that phrase is used, it means that they got drunk. That this was a party. And that's exactly what's happening here. Joseph is setting all of this up for one last test. He's building Benjamin up. He got five times as much food as the other brothers did. And then to lower their judgment, he fills them with alcohol. And we've talked about that this is a, alcohol often leads to a false peace. Everywhere the Bible talks about getting drunk is a sin. That is why in our covenant we say, uh, we don't say you cannot drink. We say that you should not be controlled by alcohol. So getting drunk is a sin. If you have to have a drink every single night, that would be controlled by alcohol and it would be a sin. If you cause someone else who maybe is an alcoholic to struggle with alcohol, that would be a sin. But the Bible does not forbid drinking. It might be unwise but it would not be biblical for us to say you cannot have a drink. Just felt like we throw that in there when we talk about alcohol. So think about the story at this point. All of the sons of Jacob are sitting around at this party at peace with one another. If you remember Genesis 37.4, back when Joseph was annoying to them, there's a phrase that the brothers would not say to Joseph. Do you remember what it was? Shalom, the greeting, peace. They had made him so mad that he had made them so mad that they would not even greet him with peace. See, what we see in this chapter is God's peeling back the layers for us a little bit to show us that this is so much more than God protecting one family from a famine. This is God restoring shalom, peace to this family. Joseph didn't send the famine. God did. Joseph didn't send his brothers to come and get food. The Lord moved them that way. Jacob didn't want to send Benjamin, but God forced his hand by continuing to do the famine. What God is doing in this is he is bringing peace to this family. God makes unlikely peace in fractured families all throughout the Bible. 
God is the one who is initiating this family meeting. Think about this. If God had brought Joseph to the position he is in, second in command of all of Egypt, after one year after he'd been sold into slavery, I don't think Joseph would have responded to his brothers this way. But over 20 years of Joseph resting in the gospel, 20 years of Joseph struggling with hardship and being in the pit and being promoted and being sold to slavery and being promoted and interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and finally getting to the place that he's at, he sees this picture now of what the Lord is doing. See, gospel peace is something that we often pray for people when they go through a hard time. We pray that they would have peace that surpasses understanding, but rarely do we step back and actually think about what gospel peace is and what it is not. Oftentimes, we will interpret peace to mean what the world means it to, uh, what the world thinks it should mean. Or we'll use God to think, like, I want peace, and so I want peace with God. And what I mean by peace with God is uh, if I have enough money, if I have enough health, if I have enough prominence, if I have enough time, if I have enough leisure, if I have enough entertainment, then my life will be peaceful. Do you know, basically, any study you look at will tell you that we are the most stressed that we have ever been as human beings in the course of history. We worry about everything. We worry so much that if others don't worry like we worry, or if they think that they solve the worries a different way than our worries we think should be solved, then we fight them and we think there's something wrong with them. And if you don't worry, we think you're psychotic. But what the Bible tells us is that's not peace. Peace and comfort are not synonyms. The gospel of peace is not Jesus coming into your life like a butler and waiting on you to make a request that he can happily answer. Gospel peace is Jesus coming into your heart, into your very soul, and cleansing you. Getting into all of the depth and all of the darkness that you and I harbor deep within our hearts. Getting into all of the worries and all of the trust issues that we cling to and that we hold to. Diving into deep into who we are. And God oftentimes will force us to sacrifice idols that control us. And none of that is comfortable. But it's necessary. When I was a junior in high school, I had to have my wisdom teeth taken out. That's why I'm not wise. Here's the thing. I didn't even know I had wisdom teeth. They grew in sideways. I must be English somewhere in my background. But what happened is one corner of one of my wisdom teeth poked out of my gums. And so every time I ate food, unknowingly, I was packing food into my gum. And it was going to get infected at some point. And so I found out about this at the end of basketball season and and kind of at the beginning of track. I was on the JV basketball team, and and I had a chance at track to go to state. And and so I knew it was probably my last year of playing basketball. And so for me, this hard decision came about of do I give up the last year of the last few games of playing basketball or do I give up the sport that I'm, I'm good at and that I like to do? So I sacrificed basketball. They took a hammer, shattered my teeth, pulled them out chunk by chunk. But the story that that gets me the most is right before I go under, they say, you grew up in Panhandle? I said, yes. And they said, do you know Rowdy Cunningham? Yes, I knew Rowdy. 
Rowdy was a senior when I was a freshman, and I played football, and I was half the man that I am today physically. And every time Rowdy would pull as a guard, he could smell the fear within me. And he would level me. And so right before I go under, they say, oh, yeah, Rowdy works here. And then, boom, I'm knocked out. No peace. And I never honestly had any wisdom teeth pain other than the few days after it had been taken out. That's the hard way God works on us sometimes. Is when we have sin or we have things that we are hiding deep inside and we realize that there's issues and and, and maybe we don't realize that it's an issue. But God takes care of them before they fester up and before they cause bigger issues. Maybe that's where you're at right now. God is working on you in a way that doesn't make sense to you in the moment. You're not in pain. You're not hurting. Sure, you know that it's not just the best thing for you. But does God have to do all of this right now? Other times it can be more painful. Six months ago I had a massive toothache. But here's the deal. I had cracked that tooth two, three years beforehand. (laughs) But I'm cheap, and I thought, well, this is just life. I'm going to live with a cracked tooth for the rest of my life. It didn't hurt, so I didn't do anything. I kept living like normal, and slowly, over the years, pieces of my tooth would break. It had started to turn black, but it was mostly unnoticeable until it wasn't. It started hurting, and within the week, I I had to get this thing out. So I go to the dentist, but because I hadn't been to the dentist before, they had to do x-rays and the normal visit stuff and all these things that I wasn't aware of, because the last time I went to the dentist, they gave me headphones and let me watch cartoons on a TV. At the end of the appointment, they said, you're going to have to have a root canal, cause your tooth, but your tooth is abscessed, so you're, you, that's why you're in so much pain. And so I was like, okay, well, when can I get in? And she said, you can come in in a month. And I was, I don't know if I started crying. I kind of blacked out there for a minute. And then the lady said, actually, hold on a second. And she stood up and she left. And then she came back and she said, if you want to do it today, you can do it today. But it's going to hurt because the tooth is abscessed. A month of pain, get it over with now it over with now is what I chose that's one of the most painful procedures I've ever had done to me the doctor just kept calling me buddy he didn't know my name but I'm happy to say that the tooth doesn't hurt sometimes that's how the Lord works on us is that those sins those issues that in our heart infect us and they cause pain And when Jesus comes, he works to make us at peace. But that doesn't mean he just comes and he numbs the pain. It means that he comes and he deals with the issue. And a lot of times we can read the Bible and Jesus says pain is going to be in your life. And the only way that you're going to get through this is you're going to feel this pain your whole life. But you're going to have to rest in me all of your days. That's the only way you're going to have strength to do this. And sometimes the pain is a procedure where the season of life, it is just nasty and it hurts and it struggles. And, and maybe over time there's less pain and other times the pain is left with you. But the reality is gospel peace is more than a therapeutic comfort in a painlessness. Peace is is first and foremost with God. That's what the gospel is about. That you and I are enemies of God. 
rebels. And Jesus comes to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we deserve. He took the wrath of God, imputed to us his righteousness. And that happens the moment we are believed, we are justified, and we are at peace with God. And so maybe that's where you're at, is I'm not at peace with the Lord because I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ. What is keeping you from repenting and turning to Jesus today? For others who've been believers for a little while, there's this process called sanctification that takes place after salvation. And it's basically God making us more and more like Jesus. God is not done with you yet if you're alive. And so the longer you live, the more the Lord is going to work on you in these areas. And the more and the more the Lord is going to shape you to be more and more like Jesus. And so this means that that gospel peace, it involves freeing us from idols. Freeing us from sin. The gospel peace we have with God involves forgiving those that we deem unforgivable. Because God forgave us. Gospel peace that we have with God involves reconciling those relationships that have years and years and years of hurts and wounds. Because God reconciled his relationship with us. Gospel peace that we have with God involves being at peace with one another because Jesus is enough. So maybe the call then is to grow like Judah grew in the story. That your background's not perfect, that there's some some big sins there, but God's not done with you yet, and you're not too far beyond his grace and mercy. Maybe the call is to kill some of those idols like Jacob. Maybe the call is to leave worry with the Lord like the brothers did. Maybe the call is to seek relationships with those that have offended you like Joseph did. But whatever the call is, the end result is we should be more like Jesus because of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for a passage like Genesis 43. It is just chocked full of things that are hard and things that are difficult and things that are good for us. I pray that your gospel would shine in our hearts and in our lives. That we would know you more. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We sang the first verse of this a little while ago, but let's sing the second and the fourth verse in the choruses.